Hello, everyone, and welcome to another issue of Kane and Rince. In this issue, we will be covering uh, Final Fantasy VIII. But before we get on to that, play along with Kane and Rince. Um, upcoming issues include Captain Toad, Treasure Tracker, Super Ghouls and Ghosts, uh, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, uh, Dark Souls 3, completing that series, and Wolfenstein 2, The New Colossus. Um, you can get the show a week earlier if you are a member of our Patreon. Um, you only have to donate as little as $1 per month uh, in order to get um, access to our early access feed. Um, so it's absolutely worth doing and um, it helps us you know, maintain the website, maintain um, the feeds and everything so that we can keep giving you fantastic podcasts. You'll, you'll also get access to monthly musings from um, uh, Leon and Jay, um, and you'll also get a limited time exclusivity on our console specials. They will eventually be made public, but if you want to get, you know, listening to them before anyone else, you have to be a member of our Patreon. Um, but you can also support us on PayPal via iTunes through reviews and rating us and all of that stuff um, via Spotify as well. Um, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And also don't forget our many other podcasts as part of the you know, Kane and Rince Network. We have Sound of Play on Wednesdays, Playwright on Thursdays and The Sausage Factory on Friday. So give those podcasts a listen to. Now, joining me, Joshua Garrity, in issue 357 are Leah Haydu. Hello. Brian Edwards. Hello, hello. And Tom Quilfeld. Hello. Right, so Final Fantasy VIII is a JRPG in this long-running series um, that focuses on the protagonist Squall, who is part of a paramilitary slash high school group called Seeds, um, and uh, it follows his revelations um, as they uh, pursue the sorceress Eda, um, and we'll talk about how that uh, changes and evolves as the story progresses. Um, the developer was Square. It was published on uh, PS1 and uh, PC. Uh, the PS1 version came out as ever um, really early in Japan, February 1999, um, then in September of the same year in North America, and then October in PAL territories. The PC version came out a year later in, uh, uh, in January 2000 in North America, Feb in Europe, and March in Japan. Um, the PS1 um, emulated version of it came out on PSN in December 2009, um, and then a Steam version, um, which we'll talk about in a bit, came out in December 2013. Um, so there was a bit of a changing of the guard uh, with this. Um, Sakaguchi, um, who had been a, you know, a big figurehead of this series up until this point, um, served as an executive producer um, instead of his usual role, um, as he was working primarily on the development of Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, the feature film, um, which 
became notable. <laughs> um, it was referenced. Even, even I in, don't think that actually. It was referenced in Life is Strange. Uh, Life is Strange. Oh, another um, thing that Josh hates. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, uh, and he left direction of Final Fantasy VIII to Yoshinori Kitase. Um, Shinji Hashimoto was assigned to be the producer in Sakaguchi's place. Um, and it is important to note that the game was developed within a year and a half time span. Uh, some other notable names, um, Nomura, um, more and more becoming kind of the primary figure. So that's Tetsuya Nomura, more and more becoming kind of the figurehead of the art team. So a lot of the character designs are um, attributed to Tetsuya Nomura. Um, there are, you know, other people on the art team, but um, he is kind of the the name that keeps cropping up whenever um, people talk about the character designs and Squall specifically. And of course, returning as composer Nobuo Uematsu, um, continuing his long tenure on the series. The reviews for this game at the time um, were very, very positive. If you go on GameRankings.com, um, the PlayStation version has around an 89% uh, review ranking average. Um, the PC version that came out in 2000, um, 80%, so it's dropped a little bit, but still generally positive. I think a lot of that will be attributed to the fact that the PC version had a lot of problems um, and the soundtrack was uh, lower quality files, uh, MIDI files, as compared with the PlayStation version. Um, sales, so this is according to Square Enix themselves. By March 31st, 2003, the game had shipped 8.15 million copies worldwide, uh, 3.7 million in Japan, and 4.45 million abroad. Um, so it did very, very well, um, uh, uh, both critically and commercially. I, so I wanted to start, uh, before we launch into our own personal histories, I wanted to start with these two pieces from the forum um, because I think they reflect um, what a lot of people's experience back in the day going into Final Fantasy VIII would be. So I'm just going to start out with uh, Nut Raptor. Um, so Nut Raptor says, Final Fantasy VII was my first JRPG and I wasn't sure what to expect from this sequel. I had a vague understanding that the FF games were all standalone adventures, but Final Fantasy VII had made such a huge impact on me personally and UK gaming culture in general that we all wondered at the time whether it would be more of a direct sequel. I clearly remember a preview in the UK Games magazine that claimed that the main antagonist in the game was going to be a virus grown from Sephiroth's body. Um, <laughs> of course, Final Fantasy VIII is a standalone adventure in a brand new world, and I am delighted that this is the case. It was wonderful to realize that you could have a whole sequence of these epic adventures all taking place in completely different worlds and with brand new characters rather than milking the same IP to death as we saw to horrific effect with the compilation of Final Fantasy VII. Unfortunately and possibly unfairly, it will always be compared to its immediate predecessor. I don't have the same love for Final Fantasy VIII that I do for VII, 
8 wasn't the eye-opening introduction to the world of epic JRPGs that 7 was for me. The bold and iconic heroes and villains of Final Fantasy VII will always come off better in comparison with Eight's surly teenager and sinister but ultimately confusing villain. What is time compression anyway? <laughs> However, viewed in isolation and judged on its own merits, this is a superb epic adventure in its own right. With a bonkers plot, quirky characters, and a limit break where a woman shoots a dog off her arm like a rocket. Bravo, Final Fantasy VIII. <laughs> um, and uh, secondly, David Baguetta says, uh, listening to your Final Fantasy VII podcast recently, I realized why that game was so influential to me. Yes, it's absolutely fantastic in its own right, but as a latecomer to that game, I happen to own the Platinum Edition, which you may remember came with the demo of Final Fantasy VIII. It was the first seed mission to Dolet, in which you embark on an extraordinarily cinematic mission to repair the radio tower and assist Dolet with the ever-increasing threat from the Galbadian army. A divisive title, there can be no doubt, but Final Fantasy VIII for me is the best of that holy trinity found on the PS1. I played that demo hundreds of times and never tired. My anticipation for the release had reached fever pitch after it was appearing in magazines. That demo still a mainstay in my playtime as I waited. To this day, it is the only special edition game I've ever owned. How on earth I managed to convince my dad to buy me the huge box with such frivolous extras at the age of 10, I do not know. The key item inside was a large adult t-shirt. God bless my dad's prioritization to get me to be quiet. Right, let's launch into our histories. Leah? Um, yes, I've hi. heard that I, I've heard that you're kind of a big fan of this game. Yo, I love this game. Uh, so <laughs> I played Final Fantasy VIII after I played Final Fantasy VII, but it was pretty close. It w wasn't right at the at the launch, but it was maybe I don't know a year or two later. Um, I got into the Final Fantasy series fairly late, as I think I've mentioned probably at least seven times before this, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I this was this was one of the first ones that I played relatively recently after it had released, and um, I, I I'm not sure what it was that got me to to love this more than I love seven because I do really enjoy seven. It's it's another uh, real standout for me, but eight just kind of tops it out. Um, later in my playthroughs through it, like as as I've played it over and over again throughout the years, um, I. I can say that I enjoy the systems of this game. It is an extremely system-heavy game, uh, as we'll talk about. Uh, and that that really kind of struck a nerve with me. It's not quite a job system, but it has that same kind of appeal to me that job system games tend to have, where you can really just get in there and micromanage your characters and, uh, and really just kind of break the game. Uh, so I've... Oh gosh, I'm not sure how many times I've played Final Fantasy VIII, but I uh, it's it's a relatively high number compared to some of the other games in the series. Uh, the and also it is one of these uh, titles. I, I I like to watch people play games sometimes, and Final Fantasy VIII was one that um, my roommate in college also was a huge fan of this game, and um. I, I would watch her play this game when I wasn't playing it. So I've I've 
I've seen a lot of Final Fantasy VIII. I've played a lot of Final Fantasy VIII, and um, I'm deep in a, another playthrough. I stopped hunting tonberries uh, to come here and do this podcast. Um, so yeah, that's 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 about where I am right now. Um, I'm going to probably be extremely positive on this. I do acknowledge that it's not a perfect game, but it's one that has meant a lot to me over the years. Tom, so um, in contrast to Leia, but probably in sympathy with a whole load of people, including contributors, Final Fantasy VII is my kind of repeat play, my forever game, my 100% um, Final Fantasy, and it and it swept me off my feet like a, you know, we mentioned in the last podcast and a lot of people have said in here. Um, and I think the first whiff I saw of uh, Final Fantasy VIII was in a magazine. I just saw a single shot of a street in Balham and uh, and I thought, oh well, wow, that's that's a really different vibe. Um, the something about the blues, something about the palette, the color palette was very different. And it's funny that 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 was actually the case with the whole game that it had this whole different tone. Um, I can't remember being quite as hyped for it as Final Fantasy VII. I'm not sure that the marketing sort of whipped people into the same frenzy, but I definitely picked it up um, day one and. Um, sort of played it to death and 100%ed it so I, I feel like I've done my time with this game but that was 20 years ago I was sort of 13 at the time I, I can't remember um, loving it falling head over heels for it in in the same way as Final Fantasy 7 and uh, you know we'll, we'll get on to the later sort of our our overall reflections but since I played it a couple of times back then um, well actually interestingly at the time I used to restart the final boss. I used to load up the save just before the final boss, maybe once a week or something, and just play the final boss and then watch the ending sequence because I absolutely loved the ending sequence of Final Fantasy VIII. I just totally spellbound by the music um, and the atmosphere of the whole thing. And in some ways, that kind of redeemed the whole experience for me. Um, and I haven't really felt compelled to play it since then in the, in the years uh, intervening, even though I've played Final Fantasy 7 over and over and over again and tons of other Final Fantasy games. Um weirdly the last couple of years I've enjoyed watching speedruns of Final Fantasy 8 uh, and speedrun speedrunning JRPG seems like a very odd thing to me to, to kind of spend <laughs> your time doing. Just odd but but relaxing to kind of have on in the background. And then um yeah a couple of weeks ago I found out I was being subbed in for this show so I I sort of got a bit excited. I bought the PS1 Classic and booted it up on Vita and um, man, it is it is slow going, and and because uh, I've just had another baby recently, I, I sort of played a couple of hours it and thought I'm not gonna, I'm not really gonna get into it this time. So I put it down, and so I'm relying here on sort of my my 20 year old memories of of thoroughly playing the game before, but not really having beaten it since. Brian, so our household that I grew up in was a Nintendo 64 house. Um, we did not have an original PlayStation. So a lot of PS one classics were, were lost on me when they first were released. But, um, when I was a senior in high school, my father got a, a different job and had to get a computer, uh, a PC, a relatively decent one at home, uh, which excited me because then I got to play a lot of PC games that I'd never played before. So at the time, uh, that Christmas, I got a gift card to what was Electronics Boutique. Ooh. And yes, exactly. <laughs> and then I, I went and I bought the PC versions of Final Fantasy VII and VIII in the same day. Um, so I went home and I installed them. And I played them 
in order back to back over the course of the next couple months. And so I was probably 15 or 16 years old when I first originally played Final Fantasy VIII. And I remember really liking it uh, at the time. I, I was um, a fan of the Final Fantasy series. The, the, the most, the, I had played the uh, original on NES and then the two that were released Western and on Super Nintendo. And uh, I played through Final Fantasy VII VIII back-to-back, and, and at the time, I don't remember really having too much of a complaint between the two. I mean, they're different games, and obviously you compare them, as the correspondent said before, because they, one's a direct sequel to the other. But I remember having very fond memories of both games in my mind. And uh, But much like Tom, I... Over the course of time, I, I've replayed seven, maybe five or six times since then, and I've only touched Final Fantasy VIII once or twice. And the most recent time before this recording was a couple of years ago, and I, I just couldn't find myself getting back into it. Um, once I found out I was going to be on this recording, I, I fired up the Vita and I put fifty or sixty hours and and completed the game, starting you know a little before Christmas, and I finished the game on on January first this year for the first time in you know about maybe you know 20 21 years somewhere in that in that range so that's basically where i'm at with it so i fond memories as a child but my my opinions have certainly evolved as an adult on how i feel about uh final fantasy 8 playing it for this recording was the first time i had properly completed final fantasy 8 but i have kind of dabbled with it in the past um it turns out um if my memory is correct, I ne- I never actually got past disc one. Um, uh, I had played all the way up to the assassin because I remember the assassination plot. I remember the train stuff that we'll talk about in a bit. Um, but um, everything after that was new. Um, so on the lead up to this recording, when um, I knew that you know the cultural perception of Final Fantasy VIII is that it's a divisive game. It splits people down the middle. It people hate it. People love it. Blah 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 blah. I was uh, I was very much convinced that oh no, I'm gonna I'm gonna be with Leah. Absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent, gonna be with Leah. And it was entirely entirely based on disc one. Um, and as I played through it, my opinion has evolved um, and changed. Um, I do. Oh, slight spoilers for my opinion i do ultimately land very much on the positive side of the spectrum but there is a chasm there which we'll talk about in a bit but yeah that's my that's my history with final fantasy 8 um i'm going to issue a spoiler warning right from the off before we talk about anything um this is definitely one of those plots which can absolutely be spoiled um uh, it's very twisty and turny um and um uh, some people on this recording might uh insinuate that the plot spoils itself by existing <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so I, can't, even I don't I, can't. I don't I don't entirely agree with that don't worry um, I can't completely I, uh, defend against just, that there's some, can, there's some there's some well we'll go there <laughs> I can I can I couldn't resist the joke um anyway <laughs> Um, but I I always like to start off with the aspect of the game which hits you first uh, before anything else. And I think with Final Fantasy VIII, um, we have to talk about the art direction and the cutscenes before anything else. Because that intro starts up and the music starts playing and 
that you're in. You're in. So, Tom. Yeah. Um, I'd like you to start us off to like just first impressions. Cast your mind back twenty years ago, and you're viewing the opening cutscene for the first time. Tell me your thoughts. Oh yeah, it, it blew me away. It was incredible, and it's it's almost it reminds me of Baz Luhrmann movies. You know, like uh, Romeo and Juliet. Romeo plus Juliet came out in 1996. This is 99. Um, it kind of reminded me of that all these fast cuts and this exciting action um these two sexy people having a sexy fight with sexy swords um <laughs> and this music that sounded like a sort of jewel of fates from the star wars phantom menace trailer uh crossed with carmina burana from o fortuna this massive overblown thing and it totally floored me um, and it was so exciting, which is why when the game boots up into you lying stationary in a bed, nothing happenings, it was a little bit of a letdown. <laughs> I think the art direction in the game, when it first starts out, is is striking and gorgeous. I remember the cutscenes, having originally played this directly after playing Final Fantasy VII, the, the quality of the cutscene was just, it blew me away um, at first. I mean, just the comparison between, if you're directly comparing seven and eight, the cutscenes are just, there. there's no comparison there. They're, they're gorgeous. So that initial sword fight, um, was fantastic. And then when you get into the game, I remember thinking like at the time that the character models themselves looked pretty good. I mean, you went from, it, you went from what were essentially, you know, blocks on the end of long rectangles for arms and hands <laughs> to then like where I could actually count squall's fingers and um it, it was it was quite quite the improvement and uh I, I just remember being swept away and I was again when I when I replayed it on Vita it did not change at all recently in December that first time I'm walking around Balam Garden as squall and just kind of taking in the setting and and relearning the layout and and kind of going around that circular pattern for the first time it, those environments still hold up as as being absolutely beautiful. There's something about the the color palette, isn't there, that that gets you right from the once we get into the actual game, um, the more muted colors than Final Fantasy VII, you might kind of say a bit more coherent and less less all over the place, and this this sort of gentle color palette. A comparison that I've heard that kind of sticks with me is, um, and this is. I think something that maybe people would have seen, especially if they were coming off of Final Fantasy VII when they picked this up, is that Final Fantasy VII is more Blade Runner, whereas Final Fantasy VIII is more like 2001. You know, one is very clean and metallic, and, mm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. it, it has those sharp edges, and the other one's kind of grungy and, like, lived in and, you know, feels more like a dystopian type of thing. Mm. Um, and, and it's... It's not that one is better than the other or, or anything like that. It's just that it if you are drawn to one or the other of those styles, then maybe that's something that would hit you from the off. Um, I'm going to dive in here with a, uh, a excerpt from the forum. Um, Clarion86, first-time contributor, um, says, Final Fantasy VIII was the first Final Fantasy game I played. My first memory of Final Fantasy VIII was reading a preview of it in Play Magazine in the UK, which will have been at some point in 1999, putting me at around 12 years old. I remember that one of the screenshots showed realistic-looking characters in a train car, and I thought it looked so cool. Also, I mean realistic-looking only in that they actually looked human. The fashion choices were a little less realistic. <laughs> Almost um, belt. <laughs> 
Utility belts. He's got free. He's got free belts. Um, <laughs> I I didn't end up actually playing the game until a number of years later. My parents weren't so keen on dropping the forty or so quid for me for a new PlayStation game, so I obtained a dodgy copy from a friend. This ended up being a copy of the NTSC version, so I had sixty hertz and a faster game speed from the start which at the time didn't really mean anything to me, but having played the PAL version since, I can see how much better the NTSC plays. I thought Final Fantasy VIII looked amazing, um, and the pre-rendered backgrounds were amazingly vivid and colourful, regardless of where in the world you are. Going back to it today with much bigger TVs and higher resolutions, they have lost a bit of their sheen, however they still look wonderful. The cutscenes were truly jaw-dropping at the time, and the transitions from cutscene to gameplay were fantastic. Now that point there, that's what I want to spend a little time on, Mm. um, is the thing that struck me when playing Final Fantasy VIII um, properly this time out um, was the way that it combines the FMV sequences with the in-game models and how like well edited and well directed those transitions from cutscene to gameplay footage to cutscene again were like there's this um I, I, it was Andy Kelly from PC Gamer who shared this on Twitter where there's a scene where um uh, Squall is just walking through a pathway and it just follows him down the path and then it just pans up and then it just turns into an FMV all of a sudden and you're seeing this beautiful video of the garden as your wa- as uh, mm. characters mm. are walking through it and it's and it, the game is filled with that kind of stuff and yeah. every time it does it it's just jaw dropping even now like even with like the my modern kind of um, sensibilities you know be, have, being used to PS4 games having played God of War with its like one camera trick and all of that stuff it was still impressive and I think what it is for me is even though you can you know get a microscope out and go wow the textures in Final Fantasy 8 haven't aged and all of that stuff and the cut you know the cutscenes, the human faces don't look as detailed or animate as well as you'd expect now it's the direction and the editing that's so strong it was unlike anything you'd seen at that point. Just being able to manipulate the character models within this gorgeous environment was was very unique. And that that um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, the amazement that I had as a player back then it, it translated to now still for me because I couldn't believe what they were pulling off with the mm. PS1 hardware. Like uh, when they say things like textures and character models don't hold up over time, that's that's just the natural progression of technology. I mean, they can yeah, they were working yeah. with what they had at the time and. And what the achievement that this game had in its direction and design and its, and its use of camera angle and uh, it just the things that were they were able to pull off even as the story progressed like it it's it's still pretty a pretty phenomenal achievement in my uh, mind. yeah and that runs throughout the pre renders as well like that the, there are some like there's like Dutch camera angles in the castle at the end there's there's some nice you know like resident evil various games that have good pre-rendered um direction as well it kind of that stuff does run through the game but i did feel it is slightly let down by 
um, very quickly by two things. One, having the three characters kind of run around uh, uh, on the screen exactly following each other's footsteps always looked very, very odd compared to the realistic backgrounds to me. And then some of the dungeons, um, the kind of copy and paste nature of the dungeons like the prison really let that down for me, I guess, over the course of the yeah. game. Yeah, and I, I feel like Disc 2 is the most uh, damning example of just areas that repeat. Um, the prison's kind of like the most notable mm-hmm. example of that, um, but there are a lot of areas on that disc that feel like copy and paste um, are assets. But then you have Ultimissia's uh, castle, which I actually think looks amazing. amazing yeah. um, every yeah. Every single room looks stunning. I think what impresses me the most about the graphics is just that they are very cohesive. Like, they, in comparison to, for example, Final Fantasy VII, although this is far from the only game that did this, uh, which had, you know, multiple different types of character models. You had some that were in the cutscenes and some that were in the battles and some that were kind of running around the world map. This was pretty much, I mean, they were higher resolutions and more detailed, but they were the same type of character models. You didn't have, Mm. like the little chibi characters who would be you know the ones that you actually fought with and then the realistically proportioned uh people in the cutscenes. it was all pretty much the same and i mean it it, yes it's definitely aged but it 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 pointed more towards a um especially at the time for being kind of a, a a more realistic take on these characters one of the most impressive things for me for the art design that I didn't realize until uh, this time, sort of taking a look at it this time around, is the machinery and, and these huge mm. superstructures like the, t- the satellite tower in Dole, how it kind of mm. extends and transforms. It looks like the innards of the Death Star or that bit in the Star Trek reboot with the huge planetary uh, uh, drill. And then mm. there's the, the prison complex that, that burrows out of the sand and the whole of Esther City. Um, or the roots of Balam Garden. You, there's, there's a sort of the design of these superstructures really kind of struck me this time. Um, these huge beyond the human scale structures, uh, really, really impressive. David Baguetta says, um, where the game really shines more than any other in the series for me is the cinematic presentation. That opening FMV is so iconic to me now. Grown men going to hell for leather with two crazy-looking gun blades, actual real blood, and <laughs> scars to boot, and the transition to the game itself as I was introduced to the real-looking, life-size people was like Final Fantasy had come of age. Before you even have a, the chance to get settled, you're taken through another magnificent FMV sequence and I was able to walk around as it all unfolded around me in graphical quality I hadn't seen before. I've replayed this game so many times, and I am still impressed with the way everything looked whilst in FMV. Hard to believe this is from 1999. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't talk about art without talking about Nobuo Uematsu's soundtrack as well. Tom... Um, Final Fantasy VIII is Noboru Uematsu operating at his personal peak, even though he says in interviews that he prefers his score for Final Fantasy IX. Um, like he's scored seven games in the series up to this point. Um, he'd gotten comfortable with the PlayStation sound chip after you know hundreds of tracks for Final Fantasy VII, and he was able to spread his wings in terms of Red Book audio, having these uh, amazing uh, orchestrations by Shiro Hamaguchi, who 
I feel like is his sort of greatest collaborator um, who orchestrated uh, this whole um, album of incredible orchestral recordings from the game um, that came out at the same time as the game, but only Liberi Fatali and the ending sequence are actually included in the game uh, as well as Eyes on Me. So um, I feel like Oematsu is going super ambitious with this. He, he opens with Liberi Fatali, um, which, as I said, was this sort of O Fortuna, this huge classical quality um, choral piece that really sets the tone. Um, and I reckon is is better than um, Jewel of Fates from Phantom Menace, which was the same year, funnily enough. Um, and then for me, the uh, uh, the beginning of the game, the sequence of music and the ending of the game are, are just superb, just fantastic. They they touch me really personally, and and I look back and I think I prefer this score to to others of his. Balam Garden is this incredible, restful, beautiful piece. Um, Bluefields, a world map theme. I, I know it's an acquired taste. I find it to be subtle and and mysterious. Um, I love that. I love the the world theme in this. It it yeah, me too. I, maybe it's just because I've spent so much time <laughs> with it. But um, but yeah. yeah, it's it's I I. It is up there. Uh, if it's not my favorite, then it's definitely very, very near the top. Someone was pointing out the other day that the battle theme is written in 5-4, which is a, an uncommon time signature. Uh, it, that's the battle theme that sounds like the BBC News uh, uh, broadcast being a thing at the beginning. Um, but just very clever. A lot of people like Force Your Way as a kind of uh, one of the better prog rocky mid-game boss themes. Fisherman's Horizon seems to be this 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 thing that's just lived on beyond the game people are making video uh, videos about that track about what it means to them how it soothes their anxiety and how it makes them feel like a warm hug uh, makes them feel hopeful of course eyes on me the big ballad and then my personal favorite is the whole end run from the um, crazy uh, uh, sort of uh, dance macabre organ of the castle all of the boss themes and then this amazing 15 minute kind of ending theme with one of the, my favorite pieces of music Oematsu's ever done right at the death when he brings back the Final Fantasy prelude for this amazing um, uh, uh, romantic um, finish that, that caps the very end of the game where the actual end titles come up. It, it's superb. I, I, that's pretty much everything that I would want to say, except for that I think that Man with the Machine Gun is maybe my favorite battle music um, from the series. And that's the uh, battle music when you are uh, playing as Laguna and his uh, his comrades. Yeah. They, it, it's, a, it's a rare thing for any, any video game soundtrack to, um, to hit as many emotional notes as, as this one does. Mm -hmm. And I, I, everything I would say would not do the justice that Tom said about it, but that it it's a, it's an amazing feat for music in general to be, to be able to make you feel emotion, to make you feel longing for something that, that necessarily the, the experience in final fantasy, it didn't make me feel when I hear these, these pieces of music, I think about, you know, things from my own life, my personal experiences, this soundtrack does for me transcend this game. And just as a, as a grander piece of work, it just, it, it, it's, it's truly, incredible uh, anyone who loves this game should absolutely track down the orchestral album that came out i think day and date with the japanese game called it's actually called Fethos uh lusek vikos vinosek which isn't latin it's an anagram of succession of witches and love which is a bit of a letdown in some ways 
Um, <laughs> that album uh, has got the uh, Liberi Fatali that you recognise, the Eyes on Me that you recognise, and the ending theme that you recognise. But everything else is uh, lush orchestral and, and choral. And there's a, uh, a piece on there called Love Grows, which um, sounds like proper Chopin. It's absolutely amazing. Anyone who loves this game and loves this music, it will have you in tears. It's that good. It's absolutely Ooh. brilliant. The Fisherman's Horizon version is, is impeccable as well. You, you must, must, must check it out. Does anyone have any opinions about the sound, the sound effects? Um, I mean, they're, they're pretty good, aren't they? I have no strong uh, opinions, honestly, so I'm going to... I, I love all the sound effects for when Angelo uh, appears <laughs> and gets fired at people. Um, uh, I, I'm a big, big fan of dog sound effects in the Final <laughs> Fantasy series in general. I think Final Fantasy VI is still the one to beat in terms of woof. I just like that little woof that the dog does. Um, but Angelo's little, uh, like, pachoo! as it uh charges towards people is quite lovely i think there's there's yeah. some um, there's some good stuff in here like um the, when you trigger the gun blade it's pretty effective or you're using yeah um, Irvin's uh, limit break and some of the the ammo particular ammo he uses and then i just remember because i played the ending sequence so often the final fight that i was impressed by the these huge world ending magic spells that take up the whole screen you know meter and ultima and all of this stuff they do sound pretty damn epic they look amazing as well um graphically but but i felt at least with that stuff the sound backed it up okay let's talk about the story um which i think is fair to say is the most divisive thing about final fantasy 8 um so I, i'm gonna give a quick summary um of events um oh, so God, your squall <laughs> Oh boy, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. go. I love hearing people Um, summarize really wacky plots. (laughs) Right. So you start off, uh, your squall, your pass seeds, you did a seed exam, you pass, great, yay, right. Um, (laughs) You help out Renoa with a train kidnapping. Turns out the guy you're about to kidnap, president of. Galbadia, Galbadia. Uh, he's a zombie now. Uh, it's actually a fake. It's not the real president. Oh no! Um, you then get sent on an assassination attempt for a sorceress who has taken over the country. Uh, basically, made the president um, nobody. He doesn't matter anymore. Basically, the moment the sorceress turns up, he's no longer of importance. Failed assassination attempt. Um, Oh no, the plot uh, well, goes crazy here. Well, she actually kills him, doesn't she? Yeah, it, it <laughs> basically looks like Squall is dead. No, 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 uh, I meant the one that she kills the president. The president... You know what? Summing up the plot is not going well. <laughs> um, um, I, yeah. I think it's fair to say that the plot is quite twisty. Um, yeah. Like... Uh, there's a lot of time travel. Um, there are multiple sorceresses. Um, yeah. But they all are kind of the same person. I didn't bring up the fact that it, in between all of those events I was just talking about, your party just passes out and has uh, uh, and and experiences the life of this guy called Laguna um, as he slowly becomes the leader of an in- entire nation. Um and uh, the the main antagonist starts out as um, this sorcerer Ida, who ends up 
it turns out the matron of the orphanage that you all went to that you forgot about. And the and creator the, and of Garden the, and Sid's wife. Yeah, and the wife of your headmaster. Yeah. Let's not forget yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and the wife of your headmaster, <laughs> which he neglected to mention until later on. Um, it's like, oh yeah, and... by the way, she created this place and you have to kill her and we're married by. Also, there's a sorceress that's been imprisoned in a space satellite and sometimes the moon just explodes <laughs> monsters and and there's a future sorceress who's trying to manipulate event uh, to create time compression nobody clarifies what time compression actually is other than some kind of i believe nonsense i believe dr odin at one point says it doesn't matter what it means i wrote it in quotes <laughs> it doesn't matter what time compression means Ladies and gentlemen of the audience, <laughs> given my uh, very uh, strained and confused and frankly failed attempt to summarize the plot Listen, of this game. There are videos out there. If you want to know what the actual yeah. real plot of this is, it is wild. It, it's, mm, yeah. it's interesting what they did. I don't know how well they actually pull it off. And I think that a lot of people have the complaint that Squall is kind of a a, a non-expressive um you know, just not not a protagonist that you can empathize with very recently or very uh, effectively, rather. But I I also think it's important to remember that he's supposed to be seventeen, and I think that it's actually pretty good that they make him like this sullen jerk who actually has a lot of feelings that you see him thinking to himself, but he can't express them, and that's a big part of the story. I'm not saying yeah. he's the best Final Fantasy protagonist ever. I, I don't know who I would put above him, but um, yeah, there. I mean, there's. He's. I I think that they that he is more effective for me at least than a lot of people seem to think. But that's again over repeated playthroughs, and I guess he probably uh, bounces off of some people because he makes himself so abrasive. Um, but yeah. I I think that at least in part that is probably intentional. Maybe not all the way, but um, I I think that a lot of that is is on purpose. And I think what you're saying about the interpersonal relationships and the things that we can say about Squall all points to that a, a lot of these characters are interesting and you want to know their backstories and they have their motivations for why they do the things they do. Is is There's a lot to discuss there. But what this game does consistently is it will introduce a concept kind of out of the blue and just kind of force it upon you as like, now this is this is the reality of what this world is. And doesn't give a lot of context for that and just kind of makes you as the player accept it as reality. Um, yeah. Like, for example, the Guardian Forces. So, uh, yep, that's what um, I was thinking so too. <laughs> so, you know, all the, the seeds, um, they can junction these Guardian Forces, which are basically summons. You can junction these, you know, kind of big monstery things to, to, to your character and they give you different stat boosts and stuff. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but about I'm I'm trying to remember exactly in the story where it happens maybe uh, close to the end of disc one or maybe maybe it's halfway through disc two. It's it's midway through disc two. I just did this part you. in my play in my playthrough. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're all meeting the whole cast characters meeting and they say it, that they've basically all got amnesia from junctioning themselves to these guardian forces. Yeah. And so this just kind of this concept comes out of the blue. It's like oh well we have amnesia from junctioning ourselves to the guardian forces. Do we actually have that? And then I'll remember, Selfie says out of nowhere, she's like, well, that's just what the GF critics say. <laughs> and then they just pass forward. So in that one moment, they have not only created a world where they know that these Guardian forces being junked to them may be causing memory loss, 
but also in this society, there's a whole sect of people that are critics of this procedure <laughs> that have commented on it to the point, and it just forces yeah. all of that backstory on you in a matter of a moment. And and yeah. I was at, now during, I don't remember that at all from my original playthrough. I remember my original playthrough. I'm like, this is cool. They're in love. We got these big monsters. Let's go. <laughs> and and I would just p- power through it. But replaying it now, I got to that moment and. That specifically is where it went off the rails for me, and I was just like, oh, wow, Like none of this from this point on is going to have any basis <laughs> in, any, yeah. in any sort of sense. Yeah. And I think a lot, a lot of my problems with the plot, um, like disc, disc 2 is kind of the nadir of the game for me. I, I really love Disc 1. I think Disc 1, yeah. even from a storytelling perspective, is really strong. Like The whole assassination attempt, all the build-up to that, just really, really strong pacing and storytelling. And Disc Free is kind of like the opposite, where it's just so off the wall that I'm in love with it again. <laughs> and Disc Two's just kind of Disc Two like... starts off with you fighting a shoemy in a basement and kind of goes yeah. from there. <laughs> Norg. 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 This is my Sid, favorite. Sid. Oh. I this is what that's when I almost turned back around on the story. It's like <laughs> nice. uh, suddenly there's a, there's a there's a, a job of the hut like character who apparently is stopping Garden becoming from becoming a spaceship. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, so okay, I'm about, in. The thing about Norg is that he's actually interesting if you go and do the related side quest, which you can't access until after you well after you've already beaten him. Oh, yeah, but you I can did go that. to that the Shumi village and find out that the reason he's like that is because they start out all the same and then kind of become what's in their hearts and he was evil, so I guess mm-hmm. that's what happened. But yeah. like you don't find that that you have to go out of your way to find that and it's Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mm. For me the problem comes with this game just has too much story. Mm, yeah. It just yeah, has yeah. too much. There's too much going and on. And Alone to... is also there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's not forget about Alone. Uh, sending us back to the past in our coma dreams. She is a bit of a wet fish of a character, isn't she? She's she sort of it, yeah, there she, to glue things together. I don't think they do enough with her. Or, or maybe they just didn't need to have... She's presented as this very important person, uh, and you know they she's kidnapped. She or she's tried. To, uh, they attempt to kidnap her, and she gets sent off with a, a different segment of seeds. And I, I yeah, yeah she she's a MacGuffin. I, I get she's that they walking... needed to have a reason that you uh, that you could travel back into your weird president dad's body or whatever. But um, yeah, I. <laughs> There are a lot of of really good set pieces that do not necessarily get tied together very well. So I think that the story feels, it feels interesting and it feels exciting, but it doesn't feel, I've used the word coherent before to describe how the art does feel coherent. The writing, not so much, maybe. Uh, I want to take a closer look at the the cast of characters in uh, Final Fantasy VIII. But before we dive into that, just a couple of pieces from the forum. Um, The emailer says, the storytelling has taken flack in the subsequent years, somewhat deserved. Teenage angst is a fertile topic for storytelling due to its relatability, but if the execution isn't flawless, um, it can come across as whiny and immature. The dialogue in all PlayStation Final Fantasy entries has real low points. I think the teenage nature of 8 exacerbates this. A moody and terse leading man is a trope that can lead to mysteriousness and charisma, but here isn't often pulled off. 
maybe the redemption arc for Cypher would actually have made a better story. Mm. The second half of the plot is a mess. The switch from an engaging villain in Adia to the uninteresting puppet master and the hockey time travel master plan doesn't engage. If the story was wrapped up, ended at disc two, it would be much, much improved. What the story does have, again, mainly in the first half, is some very compelling set pieces. I'm thinking of Delette, Deling's train, the Adia assassination attempt, the battle of the two gardens. I was particularly taken by the side-by-side narratives of the two teams post the prison escape, giving the players a reason not to neglect their whole party's level. If I could replay just these set pieces, I would do it every year. Mm. And Nia Mitch says, although I like Squall's progression from lone wolf to capable leader, able to lean on his friends, Renoa is probably the weakest heroine of the series. Despite her penchant for propelling her dog from a missile launcher, (laughs) their love story is meant to be the game's centerpiece. So it's unfortunate that they have the most chemistry when she's in a coma. (laughs) And the focus on it is to the detriment of the rest of the cast, who, development-wise, don't get much of a look-in for most of the game. Right. I agree with that last bit, that the the rest of the cast is edged out a little bit, but I don't agree that... I do. They do have some chemistry at various points in the game when she's not in a coma, so I do have to kind of push back a, a little bit on that. Yeah, I feel like they build it pretty well. Like they start out with a kind of a a, a, a friction a, a bit, and you know, she in the beginning of the game, uh, you learn that she had a relationship with Seifer. Uh, is it Seifer or Cipher? Because I always said Seifer, but I Who think knows? that everything. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> You're again. Right. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, so, yeah, she you learned that she had a uh, relationship with Seifer. And, um, yeah, so th- I, I don't think that they start out that way, but I think that it does build up pretty well to, to the point where it is effective by the end of the game. And there's, there's we didn't mention in graphics, there's some good animation work going on here, isn't yeah. there? With, you know, Final Fantasy is known for its expressive characters. And here I feel like they take that to the next level with body language. Uh, especially Zell's uh, selfie and Squall, just really expressive. For me, Squall, Renoa, and Quistis, is that how you pronounce it? That um, is right, yeah. Um, Quistis. <laughs> um, I think those three were the characters I really liked um, and really engaged with. Yeah, it was Quistis, my party. <laughs> like, yeah, Qu- Quistis, um, I think, doesn't get much of a look in past um, midway through disc two onwards. But a lot of the stuff early on with her is really great. Mm. Um, every I could take or leave pretty much everyone else. Zell yeah, has too. a lot of Zell animation. has a sick face tattoo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, if he has a tribal tattoo, you know what kind of guy that is. On and I don't his wanna... face. Yeah, but there yeah. were tribal tattoos before <laughs> tribal tattoos were cool. So I mean, let's give Zell a bit of a PS <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. But they're the comic just comic saying. relief. Those those three are the comic relief, Josh, aren't they? Selfies kind of always wants to blow everything yeah, up, and but... she's the ditzy one, and Zell's kind of immature and can't contain himself, and Irvin's just the sleazebag. But I I don't think I don't think saying somebody's the comic relief is an excuse for shallow characterization because I, I I I can think of many ensembles like I'm going to the Lord of the Rings because that's my go-to. 
Um, I care about Gimli. Like, yeah. I care about Gimli yeah. a lot. Yeah. And he's the comic comic relief for, for Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but he's actually funny. I don't care he's about... actually funny. <laughs> well, that I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe it's the the comic relief, but they're not very funny. Um, like Irvine, like at least Selfie and Zell have personality and and something. Even though I'm not really invested in their stories, Irvine, it's just just a non-existent entity in the plot, as far as I'm concerned. He gets a little bit like. He has that moment of hesitation with the sniper rifle, and then he's the only one who remembers that they know each other. And then yeah. after that, it's just like, what are you doing here? It <laughs> Apart from been, being a he sexy cowboy. It could have been cowboy. interesting, I think, if he if they had really pursued the he's always had a thing for selfie. Like, I don't especially like either one of them, but like, you know, they, they go into that and they mention it a couple of times, but it never really turns into more than he's still kind of gross and after selfie, but yeah. you know, oh, but it's okay because they knew each other when they were kids. I, mm. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a real big fan of any of any, I, I, I'm kind of with Josh here. I, I think that, um, yeah. that they... And with with a with a crew of only six, um, and you get you know you you can play as Cipher for a while, you can play as Adia for a while, but by and large, your party is only six people, and that you can swap in and out of. And if you're going to limit your cast that much, which I think is a great idea, I like that they focused on you know fewer people. But I don't know how effective they were at making it an even split between those six. And it's it's Final Fantasy VI that's the one that huge cast but you people are really attached to each of those individual mm-hmm. characters and you feel like you get a backstory and it makes mm-hmm. me wonder is there a problem here of lack of development time was this game did this the story and the characters they not get enough time to make sure everybody had their had their piece i don't know yeah that squall and renoa and quistus their their interactions like just seem more genuine than the interactions of the other character Ir- irvine is like just wholly wedged in you get that <laughs> Yeah, that weird cutscene with him tipping his cowboy hat, and then he can't shoot Adia. And then after that, I, I uh, there were parts of the game where I almost forgot that he was around. And um, but Squall and Renoa, I, I like I could see that as kind of that that teenage angsty, you know, do they like each other? Do they not like each other? Relationship and and Quistus just kind of was was uh, kind of the professor kind of fall, you know, getting kicked out after the first seed mesh and went off the rails. Like they they just felt like more. F- for fully realized characters as opposed to um you know selfie and zell um i i just you know as kind of the sidekicky but, you know. but zell likes hot dogs so much he does he does <laughs> yeah he really the, likes the uh, yeah. the the um <laughs> the one thing that i will say about um quistus who I, I i really like uh using quistus in my party and i like her as a character but it did kind of get into the creepy bits where i know that she's only supposed to be like a year older than them but She's a professor and she is really hitting on Squall towards the beginning of the game. And then yeah. as soon as Irvine says, hey, we were all at this at this orphanage together. She's like, oh, I must have been a big sister. I didn't have the hots for you at all. And yeah. mm, I don't know about that. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a little she, much. At the beginning, she's like, hey, meet me in the garden after the uh-huh. dance. <laughs> like, that's how that starts. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's definitely there for sure. Yeah. Oh. <sighs> I don't. I also. I don't believe that she's only what like Squalor and Renoa. I can read as like teenagers. Christus feels like she's like twenty five <laughs> or twenty six, and then when she says, "Oh yeah, I'm nineteen, it's like, uh, really? 
Are you? You don't look it. She's a terrible um, teacher. Like she's really yeah. good. But she, yeah. I mean, you know, she's she's good with machine guns. So I guess I guess that's okay. Yeah. Uh, how does anyone? Um, how does anyone feel about Robin Williams? Sorry, I mean Sid. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish he would tell me his uh, relationship with his <laughs> wife uh, yeah. a lot earlier in the plot. Yeah. Seems like that was uh, also maybe an important about piece of information. The- yeah, and also the jab of the hut downstairs. Also, maybe that. you mentioned that earlier. Yeah, he's not a great headmaster. Um, maybe that's why he's hiring professors he, who are nineteen and want to do things with their students. Look, the guns are underfunded. <laughs> he needs to. Get it. I mean, it's funded by Jabba the Hutt. That's what so he is privatized get, education. He, 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 the, yeah. the garden has a literal CD underbelly. Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh snap. I mean, Sid is not a good man. He's, he's not a, he's not smart. He's not strong. He, he doesn't look out for these teenagers particularly well. He just sends them to their, you know, de- to their death in these various missions. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I do I enjoy don't... when Sid uh, just kind of goes, "Oh, uh, wow, we ran into this town. They're really mad now." Um, Squall, you're in charge of the garden now. Have fun. Bye. <laughs> He needs to go on the coast and hang out at the abandoned orphanage with his soon-to-be-reclaimed wife. So, um, that whole the, the the when thinking about the 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 non-playable cast members, like I really like Cipher. Like, I mean, I don't like him in the course of the game, but he he has a really interesting story. Just the constantly trying to prove himself, the constantly you know trying to be the best, trying to you know outshine everyone, and it kind of ends up you know hurting him in the end. Like at, at the beginning, I. I saw him as a really conf- competent, excuse me, rival for Squall. Yeah. And that relationship w- was really what drove me through the first part of the game, seeing their rivalry was going to be what, what I found the most interesting. And then as he kind of gets relegated to um, Adia's underling and kind of like, you know, just doing doing her bidding, I found him less interesting as the story went on, but... Those those interactions were the ones I for sure looked forward to the most when I when Squall and Cipher would come face to face again and again. I kind of that's how it like benchmarked my favorite parts of the stories. It it could have been interesting. There's the the storyline from the line the witch in the wardrobe, uh, C.S. Lewis, where Edmund kind of gets is a bit jealous of his brothers and sisters, gets taken under the White Witch's wing, and, mm-hmm. I, and I feel that's very much what kind of happens to Cipher at a certain point of this story, uh, and and I that could have been interesting. There's so many relationships that could have been interesting if they'd spent more time on them or developed them a bit more but they do set up the beginning of the game as squall versus cypher and it's it's pretty much the only thing they carry most you know sort of 85 90 percent of the way through the game tom do you mind reading the next forum sure so uh, this is from ben 77 million FF8 is as bizarre a hodgepodge as any game I've played, and though it pulls off an ad- admirable amount of bold ideas with aplomb, I feel my experience with 8 was ultimately defined by the game's missteps. The narrative, the narrative's backbone revolving around a time loop that begins with a group of mercenaries arriving from the future and inadvertently kickstarting a cycle of prejudice that gives birth to the very tyrant that they came to warn everyone about makes for a brilliant statement on the futile and cyclical nature of hate. But this core thread of the story is all but buried beneath a naff romance. Squall makes for a superb protagonist and one boasting a striking design that's atypically restrained for Nomura. But his relationship with Renoa wasn't executed well enough for me to root for them. As great as it was to see Squall develop from taciturn teen to responsible leader, 
I struggle to buy that the advances of a character as blandly pleasant as Renoa would catalyse such changes. The franchise is otherwise rife with women whose presence and personality endear them to the player, but 8 drops the ball with its main love interest and the emotional impact of the game is dampened as a result. This blandness is not limited to Renoa, however. The supporting party are also far less colourful bunch than FF casts had been and would be. Making the six party members peers would not have been an issue had the writing imbued them with the personality enough to leave lasting impressions, but I find that the party ultimately lacks the camaraderie that would have made adventuring with them so much more involving. The game's prioritising of Squall and Renoa's relationship over lucid storytelling has the inadvertent effect of shining a spotlight on the game's clumsiest aspect and leaving the story's intricacies for the player to discover themselves. As such, the world is full of small details that add colour to its people, locations and history. The endlessly repeating text reading, I am still alive, I will never let you forget about me, and Bring Me Back There on the big video screen in Timber offers a reason for the absence of wireless communication in the game world. Adele has been telepathically hijacking all the airwaves from space in order to spam angry messages. This detail reveals a lot about sorceresses and the impact they have on everyday life, but is hidden quite literally in the background of a single screen. Likewise, a common complaint raised against Eight's story is that the orphanage twist seems very out of left field. However, conversations could be had in Balam Garden that allude to GF's causing amnesia, foreshadowing what lies ahead. These minor details illustrate how elaborately the world was constructed, but the delivery of them is subtle to a fault, and the narrative they contribute to is left on the back burner in favour of a central relationship that was bettered in both 9 and 10, two games boasting a more engaging harmony between narrative and romantic development. Some of the points, I think it's, uh, a lot of the points there were well said by Ben77 million, but the what he refers to as subtlety and detail hidden in the background i i view as not at all included well enough and and not highlighted by by the story and the and the, the narrative design nearly as much as it should have been i feel the 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 text repeating in the background that he refers to and and some of the details about the sorceresses um a lot of that's n- not even attempted to be conveyed during the 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 loads of ex- exposition dumps we get during those portions of the game. So yeah. I think I think what he refers to as subtlety, I, I I don't I don't I don't think I give it the credit for being subtle as much as just not well executed. Just to expand on what you're saying there, I think the issue is that it doesn't really know what kind of storytelling approach it wants to take. Because mm-hmm. in some moments it's just Stating outright what's happening with no room for misinterpretation. And then in this case, it's kind of, you know, up to the player to discover. And if I was playing something like Dark Souls, where pretty much the entire story is up to the player to discover, then yeah, I'd be like, oh, great. I didn't notice that. That's fantastic. But when you're kind of like, <laughs> you know, swapping between the two, like, oh, now, now I've decided. That this moment takes, you know, it takes a lot of priority, and we need characters to really camp out on this storytelling moment. It makes me ignore those moments in the background because if you're not calling attention to it, then I don't, you know, I don't perceive it as important. Right. Um, so yeah, and not to not to continue to dunk on the story. I'm not attempting to do that at all. It's just enough of those moments leading up, like specifically in disc two, as was already mentioned. 
lead me led me to the point where by the end of disc three and almost the entirety of disc four, I was as much as they were trying to keep explaining the story to me, I was much more interested in just the game reaching a conclusion as opposed to mm. engaging with it. Because at that point, I was just so detached that I, I don't, I really didn't feel like I could make sense of any of it. So from the forum, Andy CT writes, the slightly more surreal turn the story takes following Squall's frosty reception was a bump in the road for me, which I was either slightly too young, impatient, ignorant, or unfocused enough to follow. This disengagement with the story, combined with some game mechanics that had begun to grate on me, specifically drawing magic and the unfortunate frequency of bosses not granting any XP, driving more grinding of base enemies to be tough enough to beat future bosses, who in turn I'd get no XP for fighting. Before another disc had passed, the game had shaken me off. After a break of close to a year, I took advantage of an Exploder Cheat Cartridge peripheral, which maxed all of my character stats to unfair levels and filled my pockets with magic, essentially allowing me to mechanically click through the remainder of the story. There was no YouTube then. However, with no struggle or personal investment to get through the later story beats, my memory of them is fairly limited. Something something time compression, yak yak, big teardrop of monsters from the moon, etc. I now list Final Fantasy VIII as one of my gaining regrets, having heard the outpouring of love for its merits, several articulate defenses of the mechanics, and years of more diverse RPG experiences under my belt, which led me to an understanding that an RPG didn't need to replicate FF7 to be good. I very likely owe the game another playthrough where I take on the challenges as intended and invest in the rich narrative experience. Right. Enough of the story. We've spent too long talking <laughs> about it. Um, we need to dive into the gameplay. So the combat, um, it's still the uh, the ATB system um, that's been with the series for a while now. Um, but there have been some changes in terms of the way leveling um, and magic specifically works in this game and summons as well. Mm. Um, so Final Fantasy VIII introduces this system called junctioning. Um, junctioning is the process by which you take magic and uh, assign it to certain stats or to your armor or to your weapons or anything like that um, in order to either enhance the stats or to give your weapon or armor unique properties, such as putting fire magic on your sword to give it fire damage, or putting ice magic on your armor, so when someone blasts you with ice, you're either resistant to it or it, in fact, heals you. Um, as part of this, as part of um, junctioning, you have to draw magic. So it's not a simple case of, um, you know, a magic user having mana, a mana bar that they um, use up as they use certain spell spells. You actually have a limited number of uses of a specific spell, and you increase that number by drawing magic from enemies. Um, and all of this is also tied up with the Guardian Forces, which is this game's equivalent of the summons, where you can only start junctioning once you have applied Guardian Forces to characters. And by going through the combat and um, gaining experience, you also um, unlock abilities for those Guardian Forces that also then feed back into the junctioning system. So such a, certain Guardian Forces, for example, um, can unlock the ability to refine magic from items 
um, uh, that you find throughout the world, such as um, uh, taking a curse spike and turning it into uh, some form of dark magic. Um, so this, I think, again, um, we already talked about the storytelling being divisive. Okay. I think the the junctioning, the draw system, I think is also fair to say is divisive. Okay. So. Leah, yes. <laughs> um, I want to start with you. Um, tell tell us what you think of this this new system for the Final Fantasy series. So I am very partial to systems heavy RPGs. Um, I I have mentioned I think before that I I enjoy RPG stories, which I do. But mostly, what I'm looking for in an RPG story is just for it to be ridiculous enough to keep my attention. It doesn't necessarily have to be a a good story. It helps if it is, but um, I I'm I'm also so okay with it if it's just kind of out there uh, like this one um, but uh, I what I really what really tends to uh, um, cement a game in in my uh, in my favor is uh, is a good system and I really enjoyed uh, the junctioning system in FF8 uh, I can see where people would have issues with it because it is uh, it, it does take time, uh, especially early in the game before you unlock some of the abilities that uh, that make it easier. Um, Josh, you mentioned um, refining, which gives you many more spells much more quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you are willing to put the time in very early on, like before you go to the first dungeon, you can just run around in the forest for, you know, an hour, which I did, and just draw a bunch of magic from your characters, which takes a while, but it's it, it's a different kind of grinding, I guess. So um, it... it, it it will be something that not everybody is going to want to do, um, but if it, depending on how you uh, react and uh, and utilize that system, it can make the game a lot easier. It can because um, I don't think that we've mentioned this, but uh, in the in this game, the enemies do level up with you, uh, so you, you they scale to pretty much whatever level you are at at the time. So where you're going to get the most advantage is if you effectively use this junctioning system and um, you know, find magic that will, because different kinds of magic will have different effects on different stats. Like if you are junctioning something to your, uh, to your HP stat, um, a cure spell will have a better effect than maybe a, a status effect spell, like a slow spell or a haste spell. But a haste spell might do better if you junction that to your speed stat. Um, so, you know, it. I, I got very into checking every once in a while after I had maybe obtained some new spells or uh, had gotten some um, some new guardian forces that you can junction to different characters to kind of play with it and see what the best combinations were. And if you, if you spend the time or if you're good at it, or I don't really know what it is, but you can break this game pretty mm -hmm. easily. Um, and, and I did, I still have, um, <laughs> I, I don't know when I did this. Um, but when I went to, uh, to play, uh, the game this time around, uh, there was in, in my strategy guide, which is the original 1999, um, you know, strategy guide for Final Fantasy. Oh, yeah. 
I have a, uh, a paper stuck in the back um, that has my junction charts, which is, uh, it, it's not it's not a complete junction chart. It doesn't have the actual types of magic because I like to just play with those from time to time. But um, it does have which characters uh, get junctioned with which guardian forces to maximize the number of uh, junction slots that each one of them gets and to uh, to have the best effect with the abilities that they can get. So um, mm. I, I jokingly referred to this uh, when I was explaining it to somebody at Spreadsheet the game, but um, there's <laughs> there's some there's some truth to that, I think. Yeah. It just depends on whether you're into that or not. And not everybody will be, and, and that's okay. But I, I got very deep into into uh, effective junction, junctioning techniques. Uh, one of the things I thought was surprising when reading a lot of comments about these systems leading up to this show was a lot of people... Uh, were saying that the junctioning system was very complicated and and in both of my playthroughs i i didn't find it that way i i found it to be pretty logical actually um with as far as you know if i if i junction blizzard spells to my weapon then if i'm going to do ice damage and and vice versa if i junction it to my armor or my defense stats i'm going to be defending against ice spells i found that to be great um it it's that type of uh micromanaging uh JRPG stuff that I I really like um uh, to compare it to a westernized RPG like I I really um uh was disappointed when the Fallout series moved away from being able to put individual stat points into each individual item of the line and this is the way this feels to me is that <laughs> I can really have the perfect control over what I want to uh to 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 boost and to nerf on my own character mm-hmm. um the the problem I had with the system had nothing to do with junctioning or the guardian forces. I found that to be very engaging. I love spending time in the menus, but the draw system to me is what really put me off. I, yeah, it it can get. I, I don't monotonous. know. I, I don't know why in Final Fantasy VII I have no problem going out and spending an hour and a half in the overworld just 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 killing the same monsters over and over again to increase my level. I have no problem doing that, but for some reason the drawing magic I just found. So tedious. Well, and, basically, uh, the best way to draw things is to get into one fight with yes. a character that, um, you know, something that has whatever you want to draw and an enemy that has a cure spell. So that way you can just sit there, draw 100 spells to each of your characters, and if they start to get low, you draw the cure spell and um, throw that yeah. on them. And, yeah, exactly. Right. You know, yeah. I, And see, yeah. I love that, but I, I also understand in my brain why people might not right. like that I, so much. I'm with, I'm with I, you guys, like, Brian, I, I'm, I, you both of you guys, I, I, I do like menu play in Final Fantasy games where it's a bit of a puzzle to kind of optimize everything and optimization is the key thing for a lot of yeah. people engaging with final fantasy games my personal favorite is final fantasy 12 with the gambits and like tweaking yeah. those and i had so much fun doing that uh and i think i it might be a bit of a suspicion of mine that this game didn't have enough time in the oven but mm. it feels like the, the the idea is sound and i like junctioning and they've got the auto button to kind of speed things up for people who don't want to spend ages um, micromanaging which is an improvement over final fantasy 7 particularly but what seems to be the problem is the economy of the game and and by that i mean where you get ap how it e- uh, exp works how money works how items work and the fact that you can break the game by say early on buying a tent refine you know fighting on the beach to get 6 ap to get the right refining thing to turn those into kiraga and suddenly your characters are on mm. like 2000 hp right at the beginning of the game and they should yeah. and they shouldn't be so what it seems to me like they didn't have enough time to balance that out across the game and it's funny because it's something in final fantasy 9 i find takes way too long to get 
to good stuff it, you know and then there's the final fantasy 13 thing but but there's other ways to break the game outside of junctioning which is when you get cards you can refine those cards and to beat the final boss i was like refining certain cards getting 100 aura stones and 100 hero drinks and just mm-hmm. spamming limit breaks whilst being invincible and that doesn't feel like i should be allowed to do that but you can <laughs> the, 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 here's, that that's the thing for me is that yes it is in completely broken but it's completely broken in the player's favor yes. and not the games and because of that I kind of love it in a like in a way that like I I can't really justify because it's it, it ultimately it's possible to just gain the system so much that you're so overpowered that there are certain bosses like there's a boss in Ultimissia's castle where if you manipulate the junctions in a certain way, it actually heals you every time you attack. But that's pretty good by that it, point in the game. You should be able to do yeah, that by the end of the game, though, shouldn't you? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 I I just you know, I'm so used to the run up, like the the list of bosses before the final boss being this gauntlet yeah. because of every other Final Fantasy game I've played. Was it up five that point. everybody had? Yeah, yeah, five was a nightmare. <laughs> um, but um. um but this, it was just complete, like, I, I cleared them with ease. Yeah. And, but because, I don't know, I kind of respect the system allowed me to do that. Mm. I don't know why, like, ultimately, yes, I would prefer a game where, like, it gets the balance right, where, you know, it's still challenging while giving me a lot of freedom to uh, customize my party. But the fact that it's I'm capable of doing this um, is oddly pleasing to me. <laughs> um, I think it makes a hell of a like the drawing system that makes a, a really bad first impression because of the the grinding aspect of it. But I think like by disc free, I had so many different variations of refine yeah. um, that it was a simple case of going into the menu, refine all of this into a hundred. Cure, cure magic or whatever and that was it and i i think i yeah i by the end of the game i kind of fell in love with the broken mess that is junctioning if you're playing this game quote unquote honestly and naively and you don't know all of those re- refining tricks uh that that final dungeon that final dungeon is a gauntlet and also yeah, when yeah. you get to a draw point that has like Ultima or something, it's pretty exciting, you know, because these are powerful spells. Yeah. And you're like, oh, what can this do? But but if you do know how to break it and you're an optimizer like me, you want to break it every time as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, that's I, that's basically what I was going to say. You you aren't going to luck into this. Essentially, you either have to put in the mm. work or have either experience or a guide at your side yeah. to to really know how to to bust it wide open i mean once you do you definitely can but it's it's not something that that maybe your your first casual playthrough would would just kind of run into it's smart to make summons more than just summons more than just a cutscene in a battle that you stop using because it becomes a very slow way to deal damage it's smart to have the gfs give you these abilities and have you can have that you know spreadsheet I, i quite like that and it's something they took forward isn't it with you know, summons are actually part of the cutscenes and story in Final Fantasy IX, mm-hmm. and they're a huge part of Final Fantasy X and the lore of the world and all of that yeah. with summoners. So um, you can see that here that they they want summons to mean more. 
summon Eden, go make a sandwich. Repeat. <laughs> no, you got to boost it. You got to boost that baby. Well, you boost it and then you go make a sandwich and then you repeat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mr. Ixalite says, I bounced pretty hard off the junctioning system. Coming off of Final Fantasy VII, there were too many things to accumulate and manage, and having everything tied to spells meant that I almost never used magic for fear of damaging my stats, since that's where my best spells were tied up. But since enemies leveled with me, physical attacks never seemed to do much for me either. Instead, what I did for almost the entire game was spam GFs. They did a ton of damage, shielded you, and could be summoned almost instantaneously until they died. This carried me all the way until Sorceress Adele, at which point I shifted to the brilliant strategy of spamming Aura on <laughs> Squall and Zell. Yeah. <laughs> I then proceeded to beat the game like that. Now, you can pretty much break any Final Fantasy game with enough tinkering with the mechanics, but when said mechanics feel tedious and you can break the game so easily that you barely have to engage with those mechanics in the first place, it just ends up boring. Yeah, he puts it pretty well, doesn't he, there? Um, Will says, The problem for me is that I just don't enjoy the act of actually playing the game because the core gameplay feels not just different from, from but openly hostile towards everything I love about Final Fantasy. Ooh. At every step, the system seemed designed to lay traps for players raised on previous entries in the series. Weapons aren't purchased from shops. Summons are dead end for late game combat. Um, and leveling actually makes the game harder. Instead, progression is almost completely tied to junctioning. But the way that you are explicitly taught to do that is incredibly tedious, requiring hours of mindless drawing from each enemy you meet. Clever players, for those who ponied up for the strategy guide, will really dive into Triple Triad to gather cards and change them into stat boosts. But doing that quickly makes characters comedically overpowered. 40 hours in, I never found a way to play the game that was actually enjoyable. I very much missed the standard RPG fight XP fight feedback loop, which seemed to have been replaced by five-minute GF boosting sessions and a half-assed card game. Now, Eden is the only one that Ow. legitimately takes five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, we uh, leveling up. Um, Will mentioned there. Um, I do find it really fascinating that they made the decision to make uh, enemies scale with you. Um, so it effectively makes uh, leveling up pointless um, in a lot of ways because you get so much, um, uh, you know, you, you, you draw so much of your stats from junctioning. Mm -hmm. Um, that it's almost beneficial, and this is exactly what I did, uh, it's almost beneficial to have the party that fights and draws people, and then the party that you do nothing with mm -hmm. and leave completely underleveled, so that when you come across a really difficult boss, you could just swap out the entire party. I don't think that's how it um, works. It's always tied to Squall's level, isn't it? Is I it? Think, I'm oh, not okay. really sure. Yeah, I'm pretty. It's, it's I, just yeah, him, it's there's exciting. definitely there's definitely boss fight. Well, I mean, there's definitely boss fights in um, Ultimissia's castle where if you swap out the entire party, including Squall, um, the the boss fight is a lower level. Hmm. I thought I'm pretty sure. I thought in reading leading up to this that it was average party level, average level of the entire party, but I could be off right. there. I'm probably wrong. I don't know. <laughs> 
I, I mean, it definitely worked. Um, like I, I, I employed this strategy a couple of times of, right, this is too hard. Let's get the weak ones in and uh, rejunction all the magic. And suddenly the boss or whatever enemy I was fighting was considerably weaker, um, even though I had the exact same stats because I just, you know, junctioned the exact same spells as my higher level party. Um so yeah, I I I, I don't I'm know. So, I'm want, so I'm so sorry f- for interrupting. It, it, apparently, it is active. It's the active party, the average of the active party. Okay, I um I I watched a, a lot of video of, of people playing this game up that they were calling them pacifist runs, where they were actually <laughs> only trying to kill only the bosses. I didn't watch enough to see if it was possible to do the entire way through or not. Um, but it seems to. I mean, if you're just drawing and not leveling up at all, it seems like it would be possible. Yeah. But you're you're getting items. I mean, the problem if you're doing a quote-unquote naive run is that uh, you don't know that some of the items, you don't realise until later, if at all, that you can refine some of the items. So if you are doing lots of battles thinking you're you're levelling up and that's going to make you stronger, you're potentially collecting lots of items that, if refined, could turn into quite a lot of powerful spells. But Mm -hmm. it's not really spelled out for you, is it? Nope. No. So, Triple Triad, it would be a miss for us not to mention um, the most popular uh, mini-game in video game history. I'm being hyperbolic, but um, I, I, I think it's fair to say that Triple Triad has quite a few fans out there. What, what, do, we, what do we think? I'm actually going to yeah. step back for this one, because I don't, I don't like card games that much, so... Yeah. I, think- I I played I, I played literally tens of hours of this, uh, if not more, the first time through. Um, I'm a sucker for a game with the game within the game. Like I, out of the 200 hours I spent with The Witcher, I bet you at least 50 of that was spent playing Gwent. So um, I'm definitely a sucker for this stuff. But yeah, Triple Triad's great. I played uh, even in this most recent playthrough. I got sucked in pretty good trying to get all the special cards and everything. It's a it's a it's a lot of fun. It's it's yeah, it's really good. I enjoy it uh, more now because when I was younger playing the game the first time around, I I just play, you know, it's like chess. You just get impatient. You just play something and think, what the hell? What's the worst that can happen? And you get absolutely uh, mullered and then you have to uh, save scum and, and uh, to get those higher cards. <laughs> yeah. But on reflection, coming to it now, that's the bit I enjoyed the most whilst uh, picking up on Vita uh, a few days ago. Now, granted, I was only playing the early game bit without all of the crazy rules, because definitely when the rules are all stacked up later in the game and you play a card, pretty much it feels like anything that can happen. But earlier in the game, I think it's a it's a really solid and simple but surprisingly deep card game, uh, and it kind of nestles in not to bring everything back to the games around it but final fantasy 7 had all these different you know snowboarding and stuff and at the time when i was 12 13 i thought that this game was inferior for only having one um mini game and it being you know not a big (laughs) 3d thing but on reflection i'm thinking you know the focus is much better the fact that they don't have all these different game engines but also the fact that they you can build your own skill over the course of the game um and then the the Final Fantasy IX card game being, I found, almost impenetrable. Like, that really was a case of just guessing and just playing a card and not really know what was going on. And if you won, you won. Great. But um, I think Triple Triad is, is one of the strongest parts of the game for me, actually. My aforementioned roommate was very into Triple Triad. I never... I just It's just something that never really caught with me, but uh, I do find it fascinating that 
everybody in this world plays Triple Triad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's time that we uh, go through um, the thoughts from the forum. Um, Leah, please take it away. Sure. Uh, so Major Gamer from the forum says, I did myself no favors when playing this game. I played the original PC release back in 2000 and it regularly crashed forcing me to redo large sections, compounding the next problem. I failed hard with using the junction system. I didn't care for the card game, nor wanted to sit in battles endlessly drawing magic. In hindsight, that would have been the better option since I summon spammed the entire game, barely scraping by the anti-summon boss. This made things incredibly tedious with how long the summon animations are, to the point I used summons that were the shortest to cast to try and make things go faster. Due to monster scaling, trying not to use summons got me slaughtered doing, due to being at a higher level with little magic. Monster scaling at a faster rate than your party does is an oddity in the genre. Making an RPG where being a low, lower level is easier than being a higher level is counterintuitive. Looking back now, I know, that this, I know how the systems of the game works. I'm still not fond of it. Tying stats to magic could have been interesting, but it just wasn't done well. It encourages the player, player to grind out magic, whether it be from drawing or cards, and then never using that magic because doing so makes you weaker. Rob25x says, I remember being disappointed with Final Fantasy VIII and having a hard time getting into it. I wanted to like it. I really tried, but for some reason I didn't enjoy it. I put many hours into the game, but in the end, I decided it wasn't as good as Final Fantasy VII and sold it. I don't think there was anything seriously wrong with Final Fantasy VIII. It might just have been that I played and liked Final Fantasy VII too much to appreciate a different Final Fantasy game at the time. Not long after Final Fantasy VIII came Shemu on the Dreamcast, which pretty much destroyed my memories of RPGs before it, and dwarfed almost every other video game around hmm. 1999 and 2000. Maybe I should revisit Final Fantasy VIII someday and give it another chance. Okay. Flavio says, I like a lot of the mechanics in VIII, but the plot twists and characters make me want to cry, and not in the way they intended. It does have some of Uematsu's best work in the series in there, though. It, it occupies a weird space in my head. I never want to play it again, but I have way more memory of playing it than any of the ones that come after it, even 12, which I really like. It's never going to sit ahead of two other games from roughly the same time period from Square for me, though. Parasite Eve is more visually interesting, and Xenogears has a better plot by a country mile. Dusk this week uh, says, I think most of my affection for Final Fantasy VIII comes from the first disc. Balam Garden seemed like a school I wanted to go to. The first dungeon with Aerith had that amazing soundtrack. The first seed missions, the big assassination plot. It was all so cool to my teenage sensibilities. After that, my memory of the game gets a little fuzzy. I remember big moments, but not in walkthrough detail like I have with the first disc. I still love the game dearly. I love watching people play 8 on Twitch. I find ways to play the card game whenever I get the itch. I don't miss the junction system in other games, but I didn't mind it at all in my playthrough. I don't think the full cast of characters is as dynamic or memorable as 6 or 7, but I remember being in the minority of people who like Squall and felt like I understood his character arc. And the soundtrack is another Uematsu masterpiece. No ifs and or buts. 
I understand the black sheep reputation this game has, but it will always be in my top five Final Fantasy games. And I think it's a showcase of what the PlayStation could do. And the concept of there being a top five Final Fantasy games is, is great. I love it. Uh, Dom's Beard says, I have hazy memories of eight, but they are good ones. I enjoyed the characters and the dynamic between Seaver and Squall. My favorite sections were the build-up to the assassination attempt and the hard-as-nails bit on the space station. It will always annoy me that I never finished it, though. I got stuck on a section where you have your abilities taken, i.e. attack or magic or item, and you are expected to beat difficult bosses to get them back. I must have got there too early as I had no chance of winning those battles and I tried countless times. I do still own my original copy of this as well as 7. Would love to play it again on Switch, but I have not looked into why this has never been re-released outside of Vita. Well, we, we talked about that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry, man. I wish. Um... <laughs> Alabaster Mage says, I understand a lot of the criticism that Final Fantasy VIII gets. As you all know, the story is a bit of a mess, asking players to really suspend disbelief in places, and some long and heavy-handed exposition dumps can really kill the pace for a lot of people, especially in the case of newer players. The junction system asks players to stock up lots of magic to augment character stats but this leaves you not wanting to use some powerful spells as this could mean a drop in strength hp or vitality which feels a bit mean-spirited at times and zell i just don't like him <laughs> all that being said i love this game it was my first final fantasy where i was um, in from day one i even kept the official playstation magazine preview issue in my school bag in fact, my entire Year 8 art class was spent copying character art from that magazine. I have a lot of respect for the team that made Final Fantasy VIII because of how different this game feels to Seven, which was already a very popular game by this time. The art style is completely different, not just in the shift from more realistically proportioned character models, but within the painted backgrounds themselves and world design, the color palettes used, the design of buildings, and shape language used to construct these images are full of imagination, which has a very strange dreamlike but also believable feel to the world. There is no way you could visually confuse Final Fantasy VIII with another game, let alone another Final Fantasy. Even the storytelling of Final Fantasy VIII feels like a change-up, taking the linear nature of storytelling literally and having the player scramble from mission to mission down a train line, tethering the characters to particular places with not much scope to explore for a good while, all while interrupting this flow with seemingly unrelated characters and events. This is, of course, opens up and comes together more after the first disc, but there is still a marked difference in the stories, pace, and narrative design. Whether this is a good or bad thing is up to your personal taste, but these differences show Square was still experimenting with formula and not happy to repeat Final Fantasy VII. I have done everything in that game. I have acquired all GFs, beat Omega Weapon, etc., but never got through Ultimissia's Castle. I've got to this point with a fully leveled maxed out party and also a party with the lowest levels I can achieve on numerous occasions in the 19 years I've owned this game, but I have never been able to pull the trigger on finishing disc 4. 
Whether this being something as simple as I got distracted by something else, or my sister putting my memory card through the wash, don't ask, <laughs> I can never seem to finish Final Fantasy VIII. Every time I start a new adventure, I get close to the end. It's like if I were to finish it, I would have no reason to go back to it at this point, and I can't have that. I wish I could just equip a GF to forget I played it so I could start all over again. <laughs> all right. Alex79UK says, I came to this game with sky-high expectation and wasn't disappointed. I devoured every screenshot, preview, and video I could get my hands on. I love this game. I remember it getting an incredibly unfair reception with a lot of people, and I don't think it deserved it. I've only ever completed it once back at release, although I've played the first few hours many times. I love the way it looks, the magic system, the battles, and although I don't remember the story anymore, I know I enjoyed it at the time. This really is a brilliant game, and I'd urge anyone on the fence about to give it a go. I can't say I love it more than seven, but my gosh, it's a close second. Ashman86 says... I remember Final Fantasy VIII launched on September 9th, 1999 in the US because it was the same day the Sega Dreamcast launched. A lifetime Sega fanboy, I had my sights firmly set on their new console and Square's latest entry was barely a blip on my radar. Well, that is, until I saw this the intro cinematic running on a TV screen in the EB Games where my parents and I found ourselves that day. It's silly looking back at it how excited I was about the pre-rendered FMV sequence, but it was truly majestic to me. The snippets of dialogue text against the opera-like audio track and Squall's blood spattered against a stone. I fantasised for days about a future where video games would look and sound as good as that intro video. I'd eagerly try my friend's copy of the game some weeks later at his house, but it wasn't until years later when I found the shimmering holographic big box PC edition of the game that I'd actually be able to dig into it. It was my first Final Fantasy game, and for a long while it was unopposed as my favourite entry in the series. I didn't learn about its rather polarising reception among series fans until console generations had passed, and by then I'd played enough of the series and other JRPGs to at least understand where the game's haters were coming from, but my opinion of the game never really wavered. The magic system discouraged players from actually using magic, level scaling reduced your sense of progression, I'm still on the fence on this one, and the entirety of the final disc, including the boss, comes almost completely out of left field with a really awkward and abrupt deviation from the narrative. But to this day, after having played and replayed it several times over, my memories of Final Fantasy, or Final Fantasy VIII are all fond. Gunblades and GFs, triple triad and secret bosses. I loved how zany the game could be at times, like when your school suddenly takes flight and becomes your world map navigational vehicle of choice, or when you discover that there's actually a monster blackmailing this school's headmaster, who never looked like the type of man I'd imagined to be training an army of teenaged bounty hunters living in the basement of it. <laughs> and I lived for those FMV sequences. It's strange to think back onto just how much of a treat they were, because the stark difference between pre-rendered and in-game animation is no longer so dramatic. I used to think of them as a type of reward for progressing through games like Warcraft 2, and Westwood Studios' Lands of Lore series, but I believe Square's craft for them was unparalleled at the time of FF8's release. It helped that the music accompanying the scenes was so wonderful. I think the game's score may be Uematsu's best work. Hey. It was the first game soundtrack I ever imported, and tracks like The Man with the Machine Gun are still on a weekly rotation on my phone's media player, 
and Liberi Fatali sounded to me like the natural next evolution in game music after One Winged Angel. But what's really struck with me, 20 years after first laying eyes on the game, is its narrative. While the main plot seems to lose its way right around the time Medea is revealed to have actually been the woman who raised you and literally everyone you know except Renoa, uh, Final Fantasy VIII's story always seemed a little more character driven to me when compared to its Kim. Sure, people like to poke fun at school's melodramatic emo attitude, but it resonated with at least one teen who was playing the game at the time. And there aren't many protagonists in gaming who show the same level of character progression as I think School does over the course of his adventure. In retrospect, Renoa may be a manic pixie dream girl trope, but at the time I believed the game's love story and fully, bo- fully bought into it. I'd seen romance side quests in Western RPGs. I remember thinking back then that Final Fantasy VIII was unique in that the relationship between Squall and Renoa, that romance in general really, because Laguna's subplot is one of failed, maybe failed, I'm dovetailing here, romance, seems so central to the game's story. I don't know if it will still resonate with new players, but it worked for at least one hopeless, romantic teen boy. Fantastic. If you want to hear your uh, opinions on games in the future read out on the podcast, please go over to Canaanrint slash forum um, and uh, there will be a thread where you can post your thoughts on upcoming issues. Now over to Twitter. Um, you can send your free word reviews to at Rince. We send out the call, the call out um, for free word reviews on the day of recording. So let's kick off with Brian. Glenn Watts says bottom of barrel. One Credit Classic says difficult eighth album. <laughs> ben says it's not seven. Awesome Wells, seven tough follow. The Manapool and Alex Maskell say, Between Two Greats. Jay Stokes says, Materia System Superior. Nice T, that's a great Twitter name, says, Broken <laughs> Junction System. Cattle Prod TF, Junctioning Works How? John Smith, Up the Junctioning. Oodles, Exploitable Junction System. Sharon Shaw says, Why Cards Now? Scott, summons button mashing. Dave Mollison said, Norg's frickin' weird. (laughs) Chris Smith, Robin Williams Sid. Michael M., white seed ship. The Teach, teenage seedy business. Craig, kindergarten amnesiacs unite. I love that one. Christopher Bynum says, emo every day. Jackson Finelli says, squall. Squall? Whatever. Invisible Kraken says, am I alone? Backle Rap Flyer Man says, enjoyable utter nonsense. Brendan Ajnu says, beautiful frustrating story. Will Cross says, ambitious, big-hearted mess. William Gardner says, goddamn T-Rex. <laughs> Jacinto Sane says, amnesia orphan team. Ashton Herman says, gumblades, enough said. Jeff Gallant says, triple triad, though. Eric Mickles says, what an opening. Alan Wilkinson says, that intro, wow. 
Ben McSkelly says, great set pieces. Gareth says, seriously stupendous soundtrack. Alabaster Mage says, beautiful painted backgrounds. Right, and uh, all that leaves us to do is summarise our thoughts on the game. Given the length of the recording, <laughs> I would suggest that we keep this short and sweet. Um, let's start with Brian. Um, yeah, uh, Final Fantasy VIII is, is a very interesting game, obviously. Uh, is divides a lot of people on what they think about it. Um, one of the things, though, I think that you can say about it, uh, whether you're positive or negative on your overall experience, is that it is a game that leaves you with a lot to think about and a game that, that, that informed a lot of the decisions that were made in games that followed it. Uh, personally, I really enjoyed the junk junctioning system and um, a lot of the gameplay aspects when it comes to uh, optimizing your party for whatever playstyle you like to, like to find. Uh, I, I did not gel with the story at all. In fact, as I played through the game my second time through, um, I became more and more frustrated with it as the as the story went on, and by the time I was at disc four, I really just wanted to be done with it, which really spoiled some of that later Ultimacia's Castle section for me, which which is some of the most fun gameplay. So I I will look upon this game fondly when I think about playing it on the PC when I was younger, but I do not think it'll be a game that I'll be revisiting anytime soon. Tom, it's it's difficult. I. I... I have to time compress here because I'm thinking about this game from two <laughs> two different points in time. 13-year-old me in love with Final Fantasy VII is disappointed by this game despite having enjoyed it and 100%ed it um, and absolutely loved the both the music and the ending sequence of, of uh, just the ending cutscene and the ending final boss enough to just play that bit over and over and over again. Um. Looking back on it as a 33-year-old, it's it's dis it's just I don't find it an enjoyable game now. There's no enjoyable way to kind of play it, especially not without you know on a PS4 or something with the with the three times speed or whatever, um, which does dent it in my mind. Uh, and I kind of put it in a bucket with Final Fantasy 13, Final Fantasy 15 in my head as kind of the experimental ones that were either in development not enough time or too much time um but not ones that i i kind of hold close to my heart there are some things i absolutely love about the game i love the superstructures these huge um uh, uh, uh machinery kind of building things um that really speak to me now actually as kind of thinking more about architecture in games and i love some of the blues there's a lot of really great blues in this game the color palette but especially the blues give it a, a completely different feel um, to other games in the series. Uh, but then there's some stuff that's just slightly missing that feels like um, whether by omission or, or they couldn't get it in there. There's there's a sort of a lack of humour in this game a little bit uh, that I, I feel makes it all a bit flat for me. So I can't feel too warm about it in hindsight, but I'm glad it exists. Uh, I find it a very interesting thing, uh, work of, of, of fiction uh, and art that exists. And, and it's given me some of my favourite music of all time from my favourite uh, musician of all time. So I can't really complain on balance. So um, I'm, I'm going to leave Leah till last because I think she's going to be the most positive. <laughs> you think? Um, um, but um, I, I had an interesting journey with Final Fantasy VIII. I started out 
absolutely loving it. Like disc one from start to finish, adore it. I think it's amazing. Um, I think the the drawing system had a bad first first impression, but as I got used to the kind of nuances of the junction system, I actually came to really like it. Um, disc two is really uneven and I think has the weakest moments in the game. Um, and then disc three kind of wins me back by just being so audacious and so zany that I'm kind of enjoying it in spite of myself. Um, but I think the thing that I'm going to take away most from this game is the art direction and the, the music. I think aesthetically Final Fantasy VIII, uh, for me personally, is as strong as the series has ever been. It's just really, really beautiful. Um, uh, and that's, you know, it's a PS1 game, so it has all the 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 little creaks and cracks that you expect from a, a, an older title but you know technology ages craft doesn't and i think the craft in final fantasy 8 is just incredible ultimately um i mean i don't love this game as much as final fantasy 6 or 7 but i would i i would go back to this before I went back to any of the entries before six, um, just because the visuals and the art and and the music are so memorable that um, it kind of makes this a winning experience for me, even though it does have some stumbles. So yeah, Leah. I find it very difficult to be objective about this game, and I think that I have restrained myself fairly admirably during the course of this recording. <laughs> um, but I, 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 Final Fantasy VIII is, if not my favorite Final, fa you know what? I think it still is my my favorite Final Fantasy game. Actually, um, there there are a number of games in the series that I rate very highly, but this one. Uh, between a combination of of what I like about the gameplay, which you know is is largely the the junctioning system and just being able to customize um, so in in such a granular detail, um, between that and just kind of the 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 kind of emotional uh, connection that I have to it, you know, the just uh, nostalgia for it i suppose um i i still really enjoy playing this game i i still think that it is a fascinating thing in the scope of the final fantasy series it's not perfect um we we've talked a lot about how the story is just kind of crazy and maybe doesn't work all the time if ever uh but i i still really like playing it i still have very fond memories of it um, it's something that I think I will always be able to go back to as kind of my comfort game. I'm going to go after this and spend an hour or two hunting tonberries just because <laughs> I really want that summon, even though I've had it in the past, I need it now. <laughs> so, um, yes, I, I don't know if I, it depends on the person as to whether I would recommend that somebody play this for the first time now. If you enjoy systems-heavy games uh, and you, you really like uh, kind of getting really into detail with how your characters are set up, then it might be something for you. Uh, if if not, uh, if you 
really all you want to do is kind of run around the circles and grind, there are games for that too. And this is not especially one of them. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's not going to be for everybody, but it is my game. And I think that I uh, am going to hold it this highly for a very long time. So yes, I love Final Fantasy VIII. Right. Thank you, everyone. Um, so it just remains for me, Josh, to thank Leah, Brian, and Tom, uh, and a big thank you to Editor Jay and all of our correspondents. Um, and for you listening at home, thank you. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review on all of your favorite podcasting apps, but you know specifically iTunes because of the algorithm and all that. Um, and um, please, um, you know, take a look at our Patreon. Um, you'll get access to extended issues of the podcast, which um, uh, this will almost certainly be include be amongst those that are extended. So, uh, thank you for that. Um, so, next time in issue three hundred and fifty-eight. A amprophomorphic mushroom gives Nathan Drake a run for his money in Captain Toe Treasure Tracker. <laughs>